appreciate that song. Very apropos to what we're talking about this morning. Uh, so you can turn initially to Genesis 18. We have been in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. We've been in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We have been discussing the rapture. Uh, we've been learning lessons from the sudden coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this lesson is designed to um, sum up, if you would, reasons why you and I would believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And so hopefully there are some points here that you'll find helpful as we go through this. But we will look at Genesis 18.25. We'll open with that and then you may be seated. Uh, Genesis 18.25. Let's back up to verse 23 just for the sake of context. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure, or perhaps there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. So not the judge of all the earth do right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the, the clarity of your word. And Lord, it is sometimes necessary to to dig into your word and to uh, link things together and piece things together that we might grow and better understand uh, the doctrines of Scripture. And I pray that you would help us to do that this morning. Help us to grow, Lord, in our understanding and appreciation of the sudden coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, So as you know, we'll just uh, recap some of this. Some people believe... Uh, proving, the, proving the rapture is not really that difficult in the scriptures. There's some very clear passages that talk about you and I being caught up together to meet Christ in the clouds. The debate really comes in, will it happen uh, before the great tribulation as described in Revelation? Will it happen at the middle of the great tribulation as described in Revelation? Or will it happen at the very end of the tribulation just prior to Jesus coming back? Uh, Will we be raptured up and then immediately returned with Jesus to the earth to establish his millennial kingdom? I believe the Bible teaches that at any moment you and I could be pulled up to heaven and uh, there we will ever be with the Lord. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, though I did not always. And so I want to share some things with you that helped me come to a biblical, what I believe to be a biblical perspective on this subject. And uh, I am not angry at people who are confused about this. I'm not going to go to battle with people who are a mid-trib position. I believe if you're post-trib, you've got some serious uh, things to overcome with that. Uh, I can understand why you might look at a mid-trib position. And uh, I don't believe that's the correct view, but I'm not angry at people who do. Okay, so I want to make that clear. But uh, first of all, and I think we may have to kill one of the front lights up here. But the first thing we see, one principle why you and I would believe in a mid or a pre-tribulational rapture is this principle that God's wrath is not poured out upon the righteous. Now we saw last week in Revelation how God, um, God's wrath is toward those that dwell on the earth, the unsaved in context. But there are some, also some Old Testament passages that give us the impression that there is a principle that God protects his own when he is punishing the heathen. Now, I don't think this is the strongest point of why you and I would believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, okay? But I do believe it is a good principle that gets us moving in that direction. 
We just read the first passage. Here we have the context of Lot being in the city of Sodom and Abraham interceding with a what I believe to be a Christophany, a pre-appearance of the Lord. And he is there talking with the Lord. The two angels of the Lord pass on and they head on to Sodom to deal with Lot and his family. And Lot is interceding with God and saying, look, I know it's not in you, Lord, to destroy the righteous with the wicked. You're going to do something to protect my family there. Lot had a lot of problems, but we know that he had a righteous soul. There really wasn't much else about Lot that would tell you he was a saved individual, if I can use that terminology. Although he was, uh, according to 2 Peter, he was an individual whose soul was righteous and it was vexed by the sin of Sodom. So even though Lot was a carnal Christian, if we can use that terminology, though that hadn't even been coined yet, the Lot was a carnal Christian. Here he was in the city, and God was going to protect him from the judgment that God was going to bring upon the unsaved of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot, uh, Abraham intercedes for Lot and says those things we just read about. Turn over to chapter 19 and look at verse 22. Chapter 19, verse 22, the angels have brought Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. The brimstone have not, has not yet fallen. Lot has interceded. Look, let me go to Zoar, which is, means insignificant in Hebrew. Let me go to this little city. Is it not a little one, he says? Is it not this small town? Let me flee there. Now, he doesn't end up doing that. He ends up going to the mountain because he's so scared. But initially, the angels grant that request. The Lord grants that request. He says in verse 22, this is the Lord speaking, Haste thee. Escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So the Lord says, look, you need to go. Go. I'm withholding judgment. I cannot bring judgment until you get out of here. It is not in God's nature, though we may be carnal individuals and acting like the world, if we're truly his through faith in the righteousness that he imparts. If we truly belong to him, he will not destroy us like the wicked. God makes a difference between the two. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. Why do good people die young? Well, I don't know all the answers to those questions. Uh, there are, there's more than one answer to that question. But here's one biblical answer why it would seem like, quote unquote, good people die young or are taken away before their time. Isaiah chapter 57. The Lord says to his prophet, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. No one's really thinking about why this is happening. And merciful men are taken away. Which would seem like a terrible thing for you and I, right? We don't like to see that happen. But look, God actually has a reason for it here in Isaiah. None considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. So sometimes it's merely an act of mercy that God takes his people and allows righteous people and merciful people to die. And, um, you know, we may see more of that as, as we move on in this life and as things progress. Understand, there's more to it. There's more to the story. And uh, remember that the, the precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He doesn't view death like you and I do. Uh, he views it as a homecoming, a joyous thing. And uh, yes, it is sad, but there's also joy to it. So sometimes, so here we see God removing his people prior to the judgment that he was going to bring upon Jerusalem through the Assyrians and eventually through the Babylonians. Now, one could easily make this argument at this juncture and say, well, that didn't happen to Jeremiah. He was there through Babylon. 
the Babylonian captivity and destruction of Jerusalem. He was there. He wrote lamentations. He went through those things. True, he did go through those things. But did God protect him through those things? He absolutely did. And again, someone can make the argument and say, well, God's going to do the same thing for his church in the tribulation. Just protect us through the tribulation. Well, you certainly don't see much of that uh, happening in the book of Revelation. You don't even find the church there. Okay, so... Like I said, I understand there are some holes, quote-unquote, in this argument as it stands by itself. But it is a good, uh, it is a good uh, motivator to get us rolling in the right direction. You couple these Old Testament principles with 1 Thessalonians 5.11, where Paul says, But God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, in the context of tribulation, in the context of the great tribulation Paul's describing there. He's not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That whether we wake or sleep, whether we're living for God or living for the world is the idea. Whether we're on watch or sleeping apathetically in our Christianity, we may be, live together with him. Wherefore, because of this, comfort one another with these words. God has a principle of removing the righteous before bringing judgment upon the wicked. And so this gets us thinking, at least, in the right direction. The second principle... Paul did not give any instructions. Paul did not give any instructions to the church for facing the tribulation. Isn't it interesting, as you read through the New Testament, all the Pauline epistles, all the uh, Johannine epistles, all of the, uh, the book of Hebrews, which I believe is a Pauline epistle, on and on and on. No matter where you read the New Testament, you do not find one single bit of advice to you and me for facing the great tribulation. Now, if we're going to be there, that's, a, that's something I'd want a little bit of a roadmap for, wouldn't you? I mean, Paul tells us how to navigate this world. He tells us how to be lights in this dispensation of grace. He tells us how to love one another, how to love the world and show them the love of Christ, how to be separated from the world, what we should be doing, what our focus should be, and says absolutely nothing about the great tribulation. I find that quite interesting. Uh, in fact, the opposite. You find him rebuking the Thessalonians in chapter in Second Thessalonians, uh, chapter one, about their misconceptions of facing the great tribulation, and uh, says, "Look, was it what, when I was when I was with you, did I not tell you these things? Did I not explain these things to you?" And so there's an absolute, um, there's a total absence in the New Testament of any kind of instruction, which is odd. Uh, if you and I are going to face such a big thing you would think that indeed we would want some kind of navigational roadmap for that. Third point, and some of these are going to be quicker than others, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on uh, the ones that, uh, I want to spend more time on others than some. In the tribulation, the focus is upon Israel and not the church. And that is a huge one in understanding why we would believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because if you understand what the focus of the tribulation is, it will better help you and me appreciate who will and will not be there and why. Look at Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, if you want to turn there. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, the Lord uh, describes to you and I a time uh, so bad that it's never been, uh, there's never been anything like it. There never will be anything like it. Uh, he says, alas, for that day, and this is talking about the end of the world, the tribulational period in context. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, and he shall be saved out of it. 
Now, you have the Antichrist in the, in the tribulation described in Revelation, right? You have the Antichrist described in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and onward. Uh, you have um, uh, pictures of those things, even in Zechariah. In the middle of all of that, you know, the Antichrist is eventually going to break his covenant with who? With Israel. We're going to read Daniel. You can turn to Daniel chapter 9 here if you'd like. We're going to go there next. But the entire focus is not upon what God's going to do with the church in the tribulation, but the whole focus is on what he is doing to Israel. God loves Israel, and it's going to take a lot because of our human pride to break them and to bring them to a point where they are ready to accept Jesus Christ, to believe in him as their Messiah. Look at Daniel chapter 9. These are some of the clearest passages about God's intentions in the tribulational period. But Daniel chapter 9, and look at verse 24 onward. These are some verses that it's worth becoming familiar with because they are so pivotal to understanding a lot of Bible prophecy and keeping our eschatology straight. And his power shall be mighty. Now, some of these things, all right, let's just understand. This can be confusing. So, Some of the things in here are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And then the rest of them are talking about the Antichrist and his destruction in the tribulational period. And we'll differentiate between those things as we move through here. But understand that prophecy was was often given seamlessly and had what we would call a double meaning. Where he would be talking about one thing, but in reality it was a picture of something bigger to come. That's that's very common in, in prophecy. The book of Joel that pastors have been in, that's riddled with that concept. Here we got a plague of locusts, but look past the physical plague because these things are picturing what's coming down the road, folks. And so it's common to see that. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Now, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. That's, that's Daniel chapter 8. That was talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Thank you. Sorry about that. Chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks, seven periods of sevens, okay? And we piece that together for years in other places, and then the fact that Christ came right when this prophesies makes it clear that he's talking about years here. So 490 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Those are the two things we're dealing with, Jerusalem and the people of Israel. He doesn't talk about the church. We had no concept of the church in the Old Testament. This is the focus of the tribulation. To finish the transgression, there's six reasons given. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, which Christ did at his first advent, to um, bring in everlasting righteousness, which Christ uh, imparts to you and I, but which he will bring in at his return, okay? To bring in everlasting righteousness, which we will see fulfilled in Christ in the kingdom, to seal up the vision in the prophecy, which will be accomplished when he comes back the second time. He'll make an end of all that. And to anoint the most holy. Now, this is actually a Hebrew phrase. In, In every other place you find it, it is translated the most holy place and talking about the inner holy of holies inside the tabernacle so you went into the tabernacle through the first curtain that was the holy place you went in through the second curtain 
uh, into which the high priest entered only once a year and not without blood, like it says in Hebrews, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Okay, so that is the most holy place. It's also described there in the book of Ezekiel in the millennial temple. That's what he's talking about. I don't believe he's talking about anointing Jesus here. He's talking about anointing the most holy place. So those are the six things God wants to do. And he's going to work on those things toward Israel and Jerusalem. That's his focus. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, which was accomplished in Nehemiah's day, unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be 49 years. And I'm just going to interpret as we read to make it better for us to understand. Shall be 49 years and 434 years. Okay, so he breaks it down. Why does he break it down? I don't really know, but here's my opinion. If you do the math from the time Nehemiah came, around 444, to the time in which we have the intertestamental period and the silence of scriptures, it's about 49 years. So it's almost like he divides it up. From the time Nehemiah builds the wall to the time I go silent, and there's no more prophecy, that's seven weeks, 49 years. Then he says, and 62 weeks. Then he has like he adds another uh, 434 years total, okay, um, to the coming of Messiah the Prince. Okay, so if you do the math from then on to the coming of Messiah the Prince, Jesus Christ, it's 434 years. Okay. Uh, um, but then he adds another week. Okay, so he leaves a week off. So if you do the math, you add up 69 or 49, and 434, you come up with um, 483 years. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times, which Nehemiah did. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So Christ would come and die, he would be cut off, but he would not die for himself. He would die for you and I and for the sins of all people. And the prince and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, which was accomplished under Titus, under the reign of Vespasian, the Roman emperor, or Vespasian, who would become the Roman emperor, excuse me. And Jerusalem would be destroyed in AD 70. That happened. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. A very terrible war. Lasted a long time. Millions of Jews killed, crucified, Lots of bad things happened. And he shall, con- now we're transitioning into the uh, Antichrist and what he will do. Because all those things that happened to Jerusalem, they're just pictures of what's going to happen in the Antichrist when he comes along. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So now he picks up this other week that we left off. Okay, we we're at 434 or 483. And now we've got to pick up this, this seven years. So here it is. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Now, we know these things haven't happened yet because Jesus said, look, when you see the abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, let him that readeth understand. Then you need to flee. Then you need to get out of here uh, because tribulation's coming such as the world's never seen. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Now, these things were pictured through Antiochus Epiphanes during the intertestamental period, but they're just pictures of what the Antichrist is going to do in Revelation when he breaks that covenant and tramples down the sanctuary of the Jews for 42 months, right? As described there in, or 1260 prophetical days. 
even until the consummation, but it's all going to come to an end. He's going to cut the covenant. He's going to break the covenant with many in the middle of the week. And um, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Or that's a principle or a participle that we could translate literally the desolator. So God's got a plan for this desolator, this Antichrist. And at the end, he's going to pour out his wrath on him and the desolator is going to be destroyed. So we went through all that to, to, to clarify, look, this is not, the tribulation isn't dealing with you and me. It's dealing with God's uh, heart toward Israel and bringing them to a place where they are ready to accept him. There's an interesting phrase in Daniel chapter 12. Turn there with me, please. Daniel 12, verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that liveth forever that it shall be for a time, one year, times two years, and a half. Okay? I'm making some assumptions there that that's what he's talking about by linking that with other scriptures. Okay? I don't have time to go through and explain how that happens, but that's what I just did there. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter, now get this, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, the Jews, all these things shall be finished. So when God's done with the tribulation, when it's at the end, what is the state going to be of the Jewish people? Are they still going to be thumbing their nose at God? Some of them. But in reality, generally speaking, what's going to happen? As Paul said, and all Israel shall be saved. And they're going to look on him in Zechariah chapter 14, and they're going to weep for him. They will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Right? And they shall weep apart, the, the house of Nathan apart, and the house of David apart. And I believe that that's, he said it that way because of Zerubbabel and the different family line and right to the kingship. But that's another story. But the house of David apart, the house of Nathan apart, their wives apart. Why are they going to be weeping? And there shall be a fountain open in Jerusalem for cleansing and for healing, it says. All Israel shall be saved, generally speaking. And so God's dealings are with Israel and not the church in the tribulational period. In fact, uh, Revelation chapter 12, the woman has the child, the dragon's there ready to devour it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, God catches the child up to heaven. The dragon's so mad, he persecutes the woman, right? Sends out a flood to swallow her up. Some, things are those, some of those things are picturesque and, and um, um, uh, they're, they're illustrations of what God's going to do. But his dealings are with Israel. All right, number four. Why would I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? Because an interval is needed between the rapture and the second coming. An interval is needed for at least three things to take place. Number one, the judgment seat of Christ. Two, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And number three, the salvation of kingdom citizens. Judgment seat of Christ, marriage supper of the Lamb, salvation of kingdom citizens. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I'm not trying to lock God into a time frame. I understand, you know, God's bigger than time. And time means nothing to him. Um, but he does give you and me a time frame. And he's gracious to allow us to operate in a time frame and give us things in a time frame so we can understand them. Uh, not that he needs time, but he does it, I think, for our benefit. But look at Revelation chapter 19. And we see something happen prior to the Lord's return. Look at verse 7. 
the angels shout and say, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now the church is the bride of Christ, according to Ephesians, right? Yes, that is true. But don't box God in. We're not going to get into this. But don't box him in, because if you go to Revelation 22, you're going to see the angel says, Hey, come see the bride, the Lamb's wife, and he shows him the new Jerusalem. And it isn't just church people there. There's saints of all ages there, so don't box God in. But for the sake of argument, the bride of Christ is the church. Now look here. He says, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Well, that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? Well, in principle, you and I would have no righteousness if it weren't for his, yes. But... We can do good or bad things for Christ in our Christianity, right? And uh, Romans chapter 8, where it says that, um, that we are saved in Christ, right? That the righteous deeds of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous deeds of the law literally is what that means, not your typical word for righteousness. Okay, because God wants you and I to do righteous things since we're saved. That's the same word here when he says, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. It is the righteous deeds of saints. What is this a picture of? Well, many people are divided, but here's my opinion on it. This is talking about the righteous, uh, this is talking about the church being rewarded. So at this point, we've come through the judgment seat of Christ. We've received the things done in our flesh. We have received or haven't received the crown spoken of by Paul, the crown spoken of by Peter. These things have been dished out. They've been awarded to, to the saints uh, you know, we often forget that God wants to give... Isn't that amazing that God would not only save us, but give us rewards? It's just almost embarrassing to talk about. But it, it, it is reality. God's going to do it. And here we see his bride, uh, a picture of, of the church, and she's dressed in fine linen, which is the righteousness things that you and I have done for Christ. I'm, it's, just, it's almost embarrassing to talk about, but that's what it is. And uh, he says here... And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Then, after that, okay, so those things happen. The bride is there with Christ. She is rewarded for her good deeds in the Lord, not for salvation, but for rewards. And then she participates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then, in verse 11, And I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war and we see Jesus return and destroy the wicked at the battle of Armageddon. So there's a timeline there. There's a timeline that God presents that makes it clear that something happens. We go to be with Christ prior to him coming back. And uh, it does not indicate that there's this I get zapped up to heaven and then I immediately return with the Lord at the end of the tribulation that the timeline here does not present that or allow for that number six number five I'm not going to spend much time on this one the church is not mentioned in revelation after chapter three it is not okay you can search all you like you won't find it there you will find some saints at least 144,000 of them and you'll find other saints uh, as numerous, myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands. You will find them there, but you'll not find any mention of a church, its leaders, the church going through persecution, or any of that. Okay. Uh, by the way, I don't spiritualize the seven churches of Revelation. I'm not mad at people who do. I know good folks 
who spiritualize those churches and believe, well, the end of the, the Laodicean church is us today. We're apathetic. We don't live for God. You got some problems with that because you see this in history. You see apathy, apostasy, yes. people living for God. And it's been going like this for a long time. So where are you going to stick those churches? Yeah, it's a little difficult. That's okay. All right, number six. The timeline of 1 Thessalonians 4 through 5 presents a rapture followed by tribulation. <laughs> we looked at that. We don't need to beat that horse anymore, right? Paul talks about the rapture, and he moves right into the tribulation in chapter 5 and does not treat them the same. The mere fact that he does that is a good indicator that there's a difference between the two. And then, number seven, there are distinctions, a lot of distinctions that exist between the rapture and the second coming. And if you try to mold these two together in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, you will have a serious eschatological issue and be very confused. Okay, rapture, number one, Christ meets in the air. Second coming, we meet Christ on the earth. Rapture, judgment is absent. Second coming, judgment is everywhere. Uh, rapture, the kingdom is not mentioned. Second coming, the kingdom is very prominent. In the rapture, there are glorified bodies. In the second coming, uh, earthly bodies are, are emphasized in the prophets. That people will live a long time and have children. Because there will be people who enter uh, the tribulation, who are, enter the millennial kingdom. Saints who, who are in earthly bodies. Uh, in the rapture, wrath is after the fact. But in the second coming, wrath is first. Uh, in the rapture, we talk about the imminence of the Lord. In the, rapture, in the second coming, signs are first. You can predict what's coming because God has laid out in Revelation things that are going to happen. If you're paying attention, you can tell, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen next if I were there. Oh, beast is here. Yep, everybody's going to die. I'm going to get the number 666. All Christians are going to die. Boom, it's going to happen like that. Okay, signs everywhere. But God does not mention anything about signs when he says, be ready, I'm coming back. Uh, and then the rapture goes to heaven, and on the second coming, we come to the earth. Now, this is the strongest point. With the time I have left, I want to hit this, and we'll be done. Christ's return is said to be imminent, which means at any moment. And any moment means any moment. It doesn't mean after I do some things first. Okay, It means at any moment. If I said, Grandma's coming over, son, and we're going to go shopping... All right, we're going to go shopping at any moment, son. Be ready. We're going to go shopping. And then I say, but it's not going to happen until grandma comes. Well, then he's got grandma as a sign, right? My imminent statement has lost its potency because he knows grandma has to show up first before I go shopping. The Bible does not treat Christ's return that way. It is imminent. James chapter 5, verse 7. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 7. These are some powerful verses on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. James chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The tense of that verb is the idea, his hand is on the door latch. That's the tense of the verb behind the English translation. Okay? Number nine, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest he be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Same tense, same idea. His hand is on the door latch. He's ready to fling it open. And this is in the context of them acting carnally. And he says, you better knock it off. The judge is standing there with his hand on the door latch. And he's got rewards with him. And you're going to be embarrassed if you haven't been living for him. Not that you're going to hell, but you're going to be embarrassed. Okay, so don't act like the world 
All right, and then we have 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Titus 2, 13, and all of those verses mention the word looking. And the Greek idea behind that is eagerly expecting. Okay, and we are told to eagerly expect, followed by admonitions to live right, which gives us the impression of imminency. Okay, and we'll wrap up with this because we're done. 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul says, If any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. And then he says, Maranatha. Anathema is accursed. Okay? So if any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be cut off. Let him be accursed. Then he uses a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic or Arabic term. Translated again into English. Okay, so we're getting the third, we're getting the third run of this. But in its original Aramaic, it meant our Lord come. Our Lord is coming. So he's, talking to a, he's writing to a Greek-talking church, the Corinthians. Okay? They're predominantly Greeks. And he's using Aramaic terms with them. What would that clue you in on? This was a common term. If I say to you it's a moot point, moot is, is Hebrew, by the way, it means death. If I said if it's a moot point, you'd know instantly I meant it's not worth talking about, it's dead. It's pointless, right? Well, it's so common of a term, you know what I mean. Paul used an Aramaic term so common, he throws it out there to a Greek-speaking church, and they know exactly what he's talking about. Why? Because the church had come to the point where they, are so, um, they were so indoctrinated on this fact that Jesus is coming back at any moment, they understood exactly what the term meant. So really, for them, it wasn't a struggle whatsoever to realize Jesus can come back like that, and I don't have to go through any tribulation before it happens. Hopefully that helped you. We're out of time. And I really wanted to finish it up because uh, Brother Dennis is coming in next week. And um, uh, just some things that hopefully allowed you to understand this whole concept of the rapture a little bit better. And there are more points that we could talk about, but those should be helpful enough. Lord, we thank you for uh, your soon return, your sudden return. We're grateful for that fact. And I thank you, Lord, that these, um, these truths are here. And I pray that you would help us to apply them. And may imminency drive us to holier living and not to complacency, Lord, since that is what you desire of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.